Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, um, starting at verse 31 to verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jew, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Knox. My name is Bill Langer, one of the pastoral staff here at Knox, and we want to welcome you here. Um, let's pray as we prepare to reflect on God's word. God, we're really grateful for the opportunity to be here in this space together as your people. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would now take that word that we've heard and take it so that it sheds the paper and the ink and it might become a living word and it might leap into our hearts and do business with us and work your purposes in our lives. So open our hearts now to your living voice that speaks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You hear that, don't you? It's really irritating, isn't it? But it is a sign that we're warm. We can be grateful for that, right? And I don't know if you've smelled something too. I smell the soup that's on offer later on. All sorts of distractions. This is a multi-sensory worship service for you, isn't it? <laughs> Soup Sunday afterwards will tell you more. But let's focus our minds and our hearts as we're able to on this word we've heard from God. One of the critiques that you might hear as a Christian, I get to hear it often from others, is that Christianity just doesn't feel relevant to daily life. It might provide people with some warm spirituality to get you through hard times. It might offer you the hope of a life after death, but what really does it have to do with the nitty-gritty of my daily lives? And that's not a bad issue for us as Christians to wrestle with, to think this through. Does your faith in Jesus Christ have legs so that it walks out of this place and into the rest of your life in the city of Toronto? Does it walk and impact your workplace? Does it shape your sexual choices? Does it direct your spending? Does it guide how you relate to friends and family? Does it form your thinking on social issues? And if not, you just might have to reconsider whether it's Jesus you're following or not. Because to follow Jesus, it is not a hobby that you pick up and then set down at will. It is not an event that you come to one morning on a Sunday so that the rest of your week is yours to live as you see fit. It's not just spiritual window dressing for your life. To follow Jesus is a life, a whole life. And it provides for you and I a whole framework of meaning through which our lives find purpose and coherence and meaning. The life of Jesus encompasses everything 
about our lives. It is that big. Christianity weaves the life of Jesus into everything you and I do. And it does this without pulling us out of the world, but actually plunging us right into the world. And that's the reality the the Apostle Paul is getting at in this passage that we read this morning. He's writing to a group of Christians in a city called Corinth. And the Christians there were wrestling over matters of what's appropriate food and drink to have. See, Corinth was filled with a variety of temples, pagan temples, all sorts of gods. People would bring offerings to these gods, to these idols. And sometimes they were usually food offerings, like meat. And sometimes they had all sorts of, like, a priest would be a butcher, really, uh, because they'd be preparing all the meat. And sometimes that meat that was consecrated to the idols, well, they didn't use it all in the worship service that they had to their pagan idols. And so they'd bring it to the local Loblaws and shop it off there. And so these Christians would go to the marketplace and shop for their meat, but they would wonder, can I eat this meat that was actually consecrated to an idol in a pagan temple? For some Christians like Paul, that wasn't a problem. They weren't participating in that pagan worship service, not a problem. But for other Christians, that was a big concern. And so the big issue in that church of Corinth was a whole lot of confusion about what is central to the Christian life and what is non-essential. And in response, Paul focuses on three ways, three aims, three principles for those Corinthian churches and for us to fully live out the gospel. You know, not, not to, uh, to avoid getting stuck in quibbling about legalistic affairs, but to, to maintain the big picture of what looks like gospel living. And so Paul says, whether, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And then do not cause anyone to stumble. He says, I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of others. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So in simple terms, in simple ways, Paul just lays out three ways, three principles for us to live the Christian faith, no matter the circumstance, no matter whatever you face, in whatever you do, aim your life at these three things. And they are glorify God, serve the good of others, and become like Jesus. In everything, whatever you do, you can do those three. No matter the season of life, no matter the circumstance you find, there is no sacred, secular divide in the Christian faith. There is no place you cannot know and glorify God. There is not a moment where you cannot experience the living presence of God and live out fully, faithfully, your calling as a Christian. You can do it in your workplace as you supervise others or whether you struggle with a cranky colleague. You can do it in your home as you change diapers or cook a supper in your body, in your mind, in your leisure as you watch Netflix, as you play sports. Every moment is an opportunity to know and glorify God, to experience and live out the gospel. And so we can take this as a template for our living in every situation, no matter what it is, even the really difficult things of life, like conflicts, even in the hard arguments 
even in the things that fracture families and divide communities, those disagreements, whatever they are, whether they're everyday slights or whether they're workplace rivalries, in the hurtful words that we've heard, in the late-night disregard of a really loud neighbor, in the betrayals you suffer from loved ones, even there, you can know God and live out the gospel. Today, we're beginning an eight-week series that is going to explore, that is going to teach Jesus' way of peacemaking. Jesus' way of how do we enter into the conflicts that we all face? And how do we, how do we live out Scripture's call to be peacemakers, to be reconciling people, even in the midst of our differences and and our conflicts, and how vital this is. I don't know about you, I just sense the, the absolute relevance, the vitality of this, because every one of us here, we know conflict, right? At some place in our life, there is a situation, there's a person with which you are having a squabble. It could be at work, it could be an interpersonal fight you're having where there's a fracture with a friendship, where a family peace is threatened. It could be heated arguments over ideas that you think, I cannot believe that, that my friend actually holds to those things. It could be the political divides we live with. We all experience this unraveling of human community. We know it. The threads of the frayed fabric of reality, they are in every one of our lives. Conflict and disagreement, they're everywhere and they're unavoidable. And sometimes it feels like peace can feel so out of reach. And adding, I think, to the difficulty of that is that conflict is often not something we handle well. Because it is such a troubling reality, we, we, we fail to learn the good skills of handling our conflicts. When you think of conflict, <clears throat> there are two, there's a spectrum of responses and there's two fairly typical responses and that they're at, at the either end of the spectrum. Um, one very typical response to conflict is to avoid it. This is one of my own personal defaults. Um, if you talk to my wife, she'll tell you I'm a card-carrying member of the Avoid Conflict People Group. Um, I don't think I'm alone, am I? No. We avoid conflict because we worry if any good could come out of this fight. We wonder if the emotional damage is going to be too great. It feels too risky. We wonder about the emotional energy it's going to require from us. And so people avoid conflict. We deny it, we minimize its reality, or we run away from it. We avoid a friend. We change churches. We get a divorce, find a new spouse. We avoid conflict. And this is not peacemaking. This is peace faking. That's what this is. It is sacrificing peace for a, a fake I don't know, paste the smile on your face, amicability. At the other end of the spectrum, so you got avoiding conflict, the other end of the spectrum is to attack. And in an attempt to justify yourselves, to defend yourselves, we intimidate people with a show of force. 
with anger, and it is an adversarial arrangement where you use sometimes verbal attacks, sometimes you use gossip but as a manipulative way to get your way. We build coalitions of people at work to sort of get the majority behind us. Sometimes people use courts or litigation. Now, there are legitimate reasons to use legal means, but Christians throughout Scripture are cautioned about that, seeking every other means to, to, to figure out their conflicts. But all these attack responses, they're peace-breaking responses to conflict. They sacrifice peace for control. So those are responses that we are so strongly pulled towards by the surrounding culture. We adopt all sorts of unhelpful, unbiblical directions and postures. Think of the age we live. We live in this age of outrage, right? Social media, where people are just, boom, quick to fly off the handle, to vent vitriol and anger. Or in our cultural moment, we're, we're, we're discipled, really, to focus on individual rights versus relationship. We're encouraged to adopt, often, the posture of violated victim. And the current orthodoxy is you must protect your rights at all costs, and it is heresy for you to consider giving up those rights for the sake of another. That's a world we live in, and it just adds to the mishandling of so much conflict. But there is another way to experience conflict. And that in-between space is what the gospel, the sweet spot of the gospel will call peacemaking. And it is a place of both strength and humility. It is a place of both dignity and deference for others. The gospel presents us with a genuinely countercultural way of mending Tying together, reweaving the frayed fabric of healing conflict, of finding peace. And it's this space of biblical peacemaking where we want to hang out for the next few weeks, looking at how we can respond to conflict, how we can resolve disagreements with biblical tools of grace, exploring our own sinful attitudes that sometimes add fuel to the fire of these conflicts, the selfishness that aggravates them, we're going to learn the art of forgiveness. We're going to talk about the hope of reconciliation. And in it all, we're going to learn to fight like Jesus, the Prince of Peace. That's our hope for outcome, that we learn how to fight like Jesus. And the core conviction in all of this whole series of messages is this, that our conflicts are opportunities for us to experience more of God and to live out more of the gospel. Conflict is a hard grace. It is a blessed affliction in which we are discipled to be more like Jesus. So the conviction we're holding throughout this is that our conflicts, no matter how ordinary or everyday they are, or no matter how bitter the fruit that has resulted from them, in all of these conflicts, we can apply those three core principles that Paul talks about, that we can, in all our conflicts, we can glorify God, that we can serve the good of others, and that we can grow to become like Christ. Think of that first one. Conflict is always the opportunity to glorify God, to worship, to honor God. In all our conflicts, we can do this. We, we do that by understanding 
more of who God is, our conflicts can, can lead us, interestingly, into a deeper awareness of God's character. We honor God, we glorify God by, by seeking peace because the Bible tells us that God is a God of peace. At the very center of the universe, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity live in this perfect harmony of relationship and love together. They live in right relationship. They live in peace. And we so long for peace because that is the life we are meant to live and know. God's life is one of peace, the opposite of conflict. This is who God is. This is his character. Peace is one of his greatest blessings he gives to those who follow his way. This is why every Sunday we take time in our worship to what we did earlier. We practice passing the peace of Christ. And you might think, oh, that's just a nice way, a churchy way of saying, hi, good morning, how are you? No, it's not. It's more than that. It is an opportunity to, it is a practice in which we embody our identity as peacemakers, in which we identify God as a God of peace because he is our father. I am at peace or I'm going to work for the peace of my relationships with one another. It's a practice that trains our hearts, our hands, our tongues in the way of peace. And every time we enter, a conflict, and we seek out the path of peace, we are bringing glory to God who is our peace. We are trusting that God's way of mercy and grace are the better way to live rather than alienation or retribution. We're, we glorify the saving work of Jesus Christ, the wonder of God's work on the cross of Christ. I don't think there's anything that reveals God's absolute commitment to peace more clearly than the cross of Jesus Christ, to send Jesus who guided us into the path of peace. I mean, the very purpose for Jesus in the world was to reconcile the world, a broken, alienated world, to God. And the good news is that God has made peace for us through the cross, for coming to, by coming to die in our place, Jesus made peace with God possible. Colossians says this, For God was pleased to have all his fullness to dwell in Jesus, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now as you think of that, think of this also, that God did this while we were set opposed to God, while we were turned against God, still rebelling against Him, God took the necessary steps to build a bridge of peace, humbling Himself, sacrificing Himself, offering up His power, not concerned with His interests, but seeking only our best, even while we stood against God. And you think, what sort of love does that? I'm left in awe at that, especially I go, as I go through the work of, of seeking peace. Because as I do that, I recognize that when I'm working out conflict with others, I'm usually holding back on my part in the conflict. And other people are hedging their bets too on owning their own junk in the relationship. 
And when you experience the emotional drain of forgiving, the complexity of it, the slowness of it sometimes, the imperfection of it this side of heaven, I find myself in, in just a deeper sense of worship of God, sensing more of His glory, because I think, God, how do you do that to us? How do you forgive our never perfectly named or confessed and so often repeated sins? Our conflicts give us the opportunity to worship, to know, to enjoy God more deeply, to experience the gospel again and again in real time. Every time we enter into a disagreement, into a conflict, you know what you're going to be in need of? You're going to be in need of a deeper, greater love, a more patient, forgiving love that we can only find in God. And as we walk through the difficult mystery of of true forgiving, as we enter into that place, all the complexities of it are going to point us to God, the God who continually forgives me. Every time I relive my own forgiveness, whenever I relive that forgiveness, I'm drawn to God, and I'm inspired, I'm moved again, equipped, really, to forgive again, to enter into all the hard places, to deal with those conflicts. It's as we glorify God, we're going to experience more power to enter these conflicts. And when you experience reconciliation, When a previously disrupted relationship is restored, when it's brought back into peace, you know how sweet that experience is, right? The goodness, the joy of that is so profoundly good. When you've known the the awkward silence of separation, when you felt the ugliness of malice snaking through your own heart, when your mind has imagined every worst-case motive for your opponent, and you felt anger, almost like brewing within your whole body, to find a way back, to, to restore a relationship and love, man, that is an experience of heaven itself. That is a taste of what the gospel is all about. Think of the story of the prodigal son. You know, when the story, uh, when the, the, the son rejects his father, takes some of the family inheritance, just squanders it, why is it that when he comes back, this no good, wasteful son, why is there a huge party thrown for the son with feasting and dancing and joy? Why is it at the end of history, the Bible tells us, when all the divisions of this world are ended, when all the tears that have been shed over fractured relationships are wiped away, why is the picture we're given of that time, that moment, a banquet, a feast? Why is it that Jesus gave us the communion table to remember his loving sacrifice that reconciled all things? Because this is our God. Because this is our story. Reconciliation is the gospel. And a table, which is the feast of friends, reunited, restored, is the best picture for us of the hope God has for this entire world, of God bringing together all that was divided and alienated in a celebration of love and joy and goodness. That is the glory of God. And that would be enough in itself 
in all our conflicts, if we could taste that, capture that, glorify God, to enjoy Him, to glorify Him. But the gift of our conflicts gives us even more grace. Secondly, remember what Paul said, in everything, you can do three things. You can glorify God. Second thing, our conflicts provide us the opportunity to serve the good of others. And here, I think, is where we're going to feel the countercultural rub of what Jesus calls us to. Because it requires you to sacrifice something of yourself for the sake of another. And I got to tell you, I think this is probably where our greatest challenge lies. Because in our cultural moment, our present cultural moment, we are utterly shaped to frame our living around individual rights. We are pressured to think of me first, right? To assert my rights. Be true to yourself. You do you. That's the orthodoxy of our current moment. We place the self at the center of our lives, the king on the throne, and the driver behind all our decisions. And nobody should stand in the way of me getting what I want. And if they do, that's a form of oppression for me, right? Self-fulfillment, self-actualization, that is the order of the day. And in any of the conflicts we experience, we are led to assert our rights. But Jesus calls us to something different. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow him. The cross, the very thing through which the peace of God comes to us, is the central defining reality for us, which means my life is no longer my own, nor is yours. And Jesus calls us in our conflicts and in our disputes to serve the good of the others. And that does not mean, right? It does not mean, and we're going to look at all the misconceptions of what this work of reconciliation and forgiveness is about. It does not mean that you ignore the issues, the real issues that you're struggling or dealing with. Not at all. You don't paper them over. Rather, you do something greater. Jesus calls us to love your enemies, to do good to those who hate you, to bless those who curse you, to pray for those who persecute you. And so instead of asserting our rights in our conflicts, Christ calls us to the obligations of love. The obligations of love, to seek and serve the good of others. So in our conflicts, instead of holding a defensive posture, protecting ourselves. We are led by Jesus to lay down self-interest, to get compassionate, to get curious about helping your opponents. You ask questions like, what's going on in their life right now that would cause them to act this way? When people lash out at you, very often, it's less about the issue at hand and more about a whole lot of stuff that's going on elsewhere in people's lives. So can we compassionately seek to understand another, maybe even help them to, to free them up, to support them with all the other stuff, to bear some of their burdens in this process? What a sacrifice that would be, right? Can we assist them even in their weakness? Paul, the Apostle Paul in Corinthians, you know, he realized, you know, regarding this whole meat sacrifice to idol thing, that for some, their conscience couldn't handle it. 
And so he urges other Christians to say, you might be the stronger Christian, but you know what? Set aside that. Serve the good of your fellow brother or sister who can't do that. How might, in all of our conflicts, how might God be calling us to set aside our interests so that we might serve our co-workers, our roommates, a fellow church member? Perhaps conflict is an opportunity to help your opponent come to some new understanding about the issue they're struggling with, about themselves, maybe to find a better solution to the problem at hand. Maybe God's going to use you to help the other person to learn about some areas where they need to grow or change for this conflict. But every conflict provides us with the opportunity to serve the good of others, to think first about how might I serve them? How might I extend mercy, forgiveness, and grace? And that always always requires a sacrifice. It requires a strength we do not have, which means the third thing, this is an opportunity for us to grow, to become more like Jesus. Paul writes, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I don't know about you, when I face the conflicts I do, most of the time I'm thinking, I don't have the strength within me. I don't have the grace. I don't have the compassion, the wisdom to handle this, God. And I need the life of Jesus like nothing else. And I find that our conflicts are like crucibles. They're places where our character, our being gets refined and purified. For one thing that happens, if there is ever a place where sin surfaces in my life, it's in a conflict. Isn't that true? All of a sudden we realize we're not such nice people after all. Conflict reveals a hidden ugliness that most of the time we can, you know, cover over. Or, or it surfaces a pride or a bitterness or a, a critical spirit in us. And that is so hard to face. So no wonder we're avoiding conflict, right? Because we know it's going to surface the junk in our lives. But it is a grace if we allow God to work in us and to make us more like Christ. We grow to depend more and more on Jesus, to experience a fresh grace from God, learning new habits, drawing on his strength. One, one author, Ken Sand, he says this, this process about going through conflict, um, it is less about going through conflict and more about growing through conflict. And one of the most powerful ways we grow through conflict is learning to harness the power of the gospel in this. So often in a conflict, it's easy for us to adopt, I guess, a passive posture of helplessness, I'm the one hurt here. I'm the one oppressed here. And we can easily become passive. You know, if the other person, if they would confess, if they would repent, if they would change their ways, and yeah, we, we become passive. But no matter how hurt you might have been, no matter how awful the crime, the gospel provides you with the power. The good news is you have an agency that you can act that can bring healing to a broken relationship in a broken world. When we realize that God has mercy on those who confess their sins, 
There's a power that releases us from the defensiveness and that gives us freedom to not try to protect ourselves, but actually be for the other. When we realize that we are sinners, the gospel provides the power of truth to realize our own complicity in so many of the vicious circles of conflict and violence. When we realize we are justified by the love and the grace that Christ provides through the cross, we no longer have to justify ourselves in our disputes. And so we're freed to listen, to understand, to love. When we see the cross, the costly love of God in Jesus Christ, we know that the compassion of God is greater than any savagery or sin in this world. And we know there is no situation without hope. There is no sin that won't be forgiven. There is no person that cannot be restored again. As South African Bishop Desmond Tutu wrote, forgiveness this path of peacemaking is nothing less than the way we heal the world. That is its power. It is the way that we restore everything that has been lost. Too often when people hear about Christ's call towards peacemaking, they think, oh, it just feels like it's a call to be, you know, a nice little Christian who ends up being a doormat. No, not a bit of it, okay? The gospel is a power that addresses the powers and the principalities of division and violence in this world. I mean, violence and division just are structural elements of this world, intractable problems that we have seen happen again and again with such boring repetition. They are spiritual powers and principalities, and the forgiveness of sins and peacemaking and reconciliation is the power of a new kingdom. God's new way for the world. God raised the crucified Jesus and made him the beginning of a new humanity that will reject the ways of violence, that has broken the dividing wall of hostility, that no longer needs scapegoats, that refuses to live on the backs of victims. Which means every act of humble confession of our own brokenness and our part of conflicts, every instance of compassionate listening to our enemies, every small step of forgiveness, no matter how small it is, every act of seeking the good of our enemy, every time we pray for those who persecute us, that is a proclamation to the powers of violence and division saying, your time is done. That age is over. What if, what if our darkest conflicts, the places of the deepest divisions in our world, are the very places where the gospel could shine the best, the brightest? Can we as a church make it our goal to reframe Toronto's understanding of Christianity? What if we let our light so shine that through intentional practices of reconciliation and peacemaking in our everyday relationships, in our workplaces, at our school, in our homes, that we openly and publicly declare that Christ is inviting us to ways that are not of this world, 
the paradigms of power and competition, division and violence, they are leaving this world hollow and hungry for peace. And the good news, the good news of the gospel is that God's kingdom offers us a different way, a better way. It is the way where the lion actually lies down with the lamb. It is the way of the Prince of Peace. It is the life we were meant always to know and to live. I hope in these next few weeks that God fires us up with with a new imagination for how we might be people of reconciliation wherever God takes us. We're going to pray right now. And as we do pray, here's what I want you to think of. I want you to bring to mind that one person, that one situation that is fractured by conflict. One area of conflict that you're experiencing right now. Maybe it's with a relative, with a spouse that you have not resolved something, a colleague at work. Maybe it's with a child. Maybe it's with a parent or roommate. What is that one person, that one situation that is just strained and fractured? Hold that before your heart as we come to God in prayer. Forgiving Father, we want to be willing to forgive. We want to be part of this beautiful vision of a world at peace. But if we're honest, we're a little scared, God. We're reluctant to ask for the will to forgive in case you actually might answer our prayer and give it to us. We confess, God, we are not ready for our hearts to be softened. Sometimes we're just not ready to be vulnerable again. We're not ready to see that there's humanity, that there's the image of God in the face of those with whom we're in conflict. We're not ready to know that the one who has hurt me may also have been hurt and cried. We confess, God, that so often we're just not ready for this journey of reconciliation. And so, God, we begin right here. And our prayer is, give us the will to want to forgive. Give us the power even to form the words, I forgive you. And do that, God, by turning us to you. Help us to look so fully in your face and see how you have forgiven us. Lord, do we dare to see the hurt we have caused you and others by our actions? Turn us to Jesus, would you, God? Help us to gaze long at the cross. Melt our hearts at the the profound love we see in his sacrifice. How did you do this, God? How did you continue to forgive my sins when I so half-heartedly confess them, when I keep repeating them? God, help us to trust you. You clearly lay out the way of peace and healing in this world. 
And even when sinful and painful things happen to us, may we trust your good purposes. And when it feels so hard to forgive and our hearts get filled with questions and doubts about what we're doing and fears about the way ahead, God, help us to trust your way of peace. Give us your heart of peace, God, and make our aim to bring you glory and honor in all we do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.